Hi, I'm Angelique Edmonds, and welcome to Place Agency. This is the third episode in our nine-part series about agency and place. We've brought together six extraordinary people to discuss three themes that contribute to the relationships between design process and social outcomes. The themes of social, trust and diversity are discussed in separate episodes with each pair of conversation partners. Our six conversation partners span Australia and the United Kingdom across both architectural practice and academia. They are Catherine Ramsey from Crocs and Ramsey, Samantha Donnelly from her own private practice and teaching at UTS, Flora Samuel, the Royal Institute of British Architects Vice President of Research, Angela Dapper, a principal in the London studio of Grimshaw, and Emma Williamson and Nick Juniper from the Fulcrum Agency in Fremantle. The first three social episodes of this series comprise a CPD product for the Australian Institute of Architects. So if you're listening to this from your podcast player of choice and you're a member with the Institute, be sure to check their platform to answer your CPD questions and have your points recorded. I'd like to acknowledge that this program was made possible with support from the Alastair Swain Foundation. Find out more at alastairswainfoundation.org. As your host for the series, I've been working in this area for the last two decades with a passion for how we can elevate design for social impact. My practice work has consulted for local, state and federal governments in parallel with teaching over the past two decades, most recently at the University of South Australia. A lot of my contribution to these conversations is informed by my own practice research presented in my 2020 book, Connecting People, Place and Design. In this episode, you'll hear from Flora Samuel, who is Professor at the University of Reading and is the former head of Sheffield University School of Architecture. She's the author of Why Architects Matter and was the first Royal Institute of British Architects Vice President for Research and is the lead author of the Social Value Toolkit for Architects published by REBA. You'll also hear from Angela Dapper, who is Principal in the London office of Grimshaw Architects. In addition to her architectural work, Angela is a keen advocate for diversity. She's Grimshaw's chair for their Umbrella Diversity Group, leading diversity initiatives across their office. She's also a Royal Institute of British Architects London councillor, an advisor to the REBA Architects for Change, and a contributor to the Mayor of London's Diversity Panel. In 2020, Angela won the Women in Construction and Engineering Award for Best Woman in Architecture. You'll find full bios for all of us in the show notes. And now, it's time to share with you this enriching conversation with Flora and Angela, which I hope you'll enjoy. So the first question I want to put to each of you is about the role between design and social impact and social outcomes. But but first, by contrast with our other interviewees who have all been based in Australia, since you're both based in the UK, I think this question needs to be framed with awareness for our listeners that in the policy landscape in the UK, some of this has already been framed in certain ways. The Social Value Act was brought in 2012 and requires that buildings that are procured with public money to be demonstrated need to be demonstrable of social value. Flora, I noted that in your book, you said that this was an initiative for which architects were notably unprepared. And then in June 2018, the UK central government announced it would go further and explicitly evaluate social value when awarding most major contracts. And they've since defined social value through a series of six priority themes and policy outcomes. So that policy landscape for the built environment is distinct to the UK. And I wonder 
if that impacts also your thoughts around the relationship between design and social impact. So given your roles respectively as an academic and the Vice President for Research at the RIBA and as a Principal of the London Studio at Grimshaw, a global architecture practice with more than 300 employees in your London office alone, what role do you think design has in supporting and enhancing social connection? Flora, perhaps I'd start with you. Right. Yes. Great question. I think that we all know in our core of our inner beings how much good architecture enhances social connection and has all sorts of well-being uh, and quality of life outcomes. I tend to use social value interchangeably with well-being and quality of life because social value is a term that really is pretty meaningless to most people, but works in a policy kind of context. And because architects in practice were having to answer questions about the social value that they were delivering through their projects. And I work with a group of practitioners who lead on research in architectural practice, mainly based in London. And they, they identified there was a really key problem about communicating the value of design in these procurement kind of contexts. And That's because social value has been very much looked at in the UK, very much as jobs and apprenticeships around the construction process. And we really wanted to get the message across that the design of the building itself in the long term has real value. So we did it. We made the Social Value Toolkit for Architecture, which was published by the RIBA, which defined certain key outcomes around connecting people, active lifestyles, positive emotions, participation, empowerment that was key attributes of a social value, key things that made people feel better in well-designed environments. And since we developed that, um, the Quality of Life Foundation has produced an even better framework, I would say, because it includes criteria such as wonder, which I think is really key. You have to think of where the cultural social value comes in here. And the best kind of well-being of all is eudaimonic well-being, which is uh, well-being where you feel a sense of purpose beyond yourself. And so we have to build in opportunities for people to grow, grow as human beings uh, inside their places. So we define these kind of criteria as a starting point for a conversation. And so the architects would stop and others would stop saying these things are too difficult to talk about. Let's, let's make a start and say that there are these things out there and you can talk about them. And actually, they are the perhaps possibly the most important things that architects can deliver. And I think that relates also got caught. 26. I think that uh, social climate change is a social justice issue and is inherently tied up with social value as well. So social value has to be looked at in the long term, long term life cycle of buildings. And we have a big issue, which is around the fact that very rarely do architects go back and do post occupancy evaluation or any kind of testing to see whether their projects work. But yes, yeah, so that was it. We we made a we tried to make a framework as a starting point, as a conversation with architects about where their social value lies. Thank you for a very comprehensive answer, Angela. How, what what's your response to the role between design and social impact? That's really good uh, context setting from Flora. And just looking on the other side of that, I'm glad you mentioned sustainability because we are really having to look at the longevity of our buildings. And if we really want longevity in buildings, uh, we need to make sure they're well loved. They have to be purposeful. They have to be meaningful. They have to be right for their context, socially, culturally, economically. We are having to look at things, all the issues holistically. And I think this is the way we should have always been designing. So I think so part of so what uh, Flora was mentioning before was the um, 
the the requirements that are coming out from our particular governmental bids requiring a social context. And it's really interesting because it's turned, it's become a part of the procurement process. And I think the next step is really how do you respond to that and how is it measured? What does it really mean? And so I think there's probably still a little bit of gap of understanding in terms of how do we fill a gap? What is good social and meaningful engagement with people? But also what does diversity look like? How do we score something as good rather than it just being a policy or something written? It needs to be demonstrable. And so we still need to see the results of some of the procurement routes uh, that we've put in place and methods to actually really understand the, the value and where it's succeed. But what it's done is it's been a real challenge. And also the context of COVID, I think we've seen COVID really, really shining a light on inequality in our built environment. And so this is as much as uh, the social equity in the built environment was picked up as an issue before COVID, it really has driven that forward to the forefront of design and really made us really challenge ourselves in, into how we design in this context. And so the first step is really about meaningful consultation. Too often, I think in the past, architects have just gone in and designed something and, and left. It's not about the people. It's not about the place. It's not about the, the cultural context, or it doesn't give a greater understanding. So it's really interesting to see at the moment, our design teams really weaving different aspects of consult meaningful consultation into the design teams, particularly when we're looking at um, projects around master planning and cities and impacts across cities. It's really important to have that meaningful consultation with the people who are in the area. To, it needs to be woven in through the streets physically and socially. So it's a really good challenge to have. And I think we're moving in a really positive direction. But holistic design is, is something that we should have always been aspiring to. So it's really good that it's at the forefront of people's thinking now. Thank you both so much for such rich answers because there's so many um, smaller parts of what you've said that I'm really keen to dive into deeper in different parts. There's a kind of a later part of our conversation that I'm really keen to talk about diversity and governance and power sharing. And you began to touch on some of that. So I, I will pick that up a little later. But just in terms of bringing us into this broader context of this relationship between where, where social performance really sits within design, I wanted to also ask you what you think about the role of the balance between hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure. Now, given that you're both architects, I'm going to assume you're familiar with those terms, but if we have some listeners who aren't familiar, let me briefly explain the distinction between hard and soft. I would suggest, as an example, that you could say that a bus stop is hard infrastructure and so are the roads, whereas the soft infrastructure is the bus timetable and the network of the routes, like a cultural script. You need to deliver both to have effective transport. Roads and bus stops alone aren't going to give you mobility. The soft infrastructure is also needed. And the reason I highlight it is because in, in the work that I have looked at, it seems to me that the soft infrastructure is the element that's absolutely critical to getting the social performance of hard infrastructure. And yet it's often that the soft infrastructure is left behind or jettisoned in, in value management to someone else other than the architects. And yet the architects are the ones held responsible for the performance of the building. So it's a, a sort of tricky situation. So I'm interested in both your views on this. And this time I might start with Angela because in reading, I understood you're a contributor to the Mayor of London's diversity panel, Good Growth by Design. And one of their publications also is the Connective Social Infrastructure. 
And I was really interested to see that because I thought, ah, social infrastructure is in some ways, as it's described in here, referring to similar things that I had meant by soft infrastructure. And in that report, it highlights that social infrastructure is in fact an ecosystem which, and I quote, covers a range of services and facilities that meet local and strategic needs and contribute towards a good quality of life facilitating new and supporting existing relationships, encouraging participation and civic action, overcoming barriers and mitigating inequalities, and contributing to resilient communities. So the report makes the point that alongside more formal provision of services, there's also the informal networks of community support that play an important role in the life of Londoners. So I'm interested, Angela, if this was part of your contribution in this area or if you see that this relationship of the social infrastructure is related to soft or you know, your response to that idea. I think there's for, for us there's a massive overlay and I think, again, this goes back to the kind of consultation side of, of design that you know we've been talking about to really understand the context of where design. I wasn't a part of that report per se, but um, I have done some work contributing to the diversity aspects where, where there is a bit of overlay in those areas. And I think part of, and, and I know you, you said that quite often they're disaggregated, the architect and the consultation and the people, but where I, I think there's we're starting to see really mixed teams. So some of the, um, the recent projects, you see the team in terms of the multidisciplinary just getting bigger. And that's not because there's more people, but because there's more different aspects that people are really trying to grapple with. And I think when that happens, it's, and, and for me, it's about diversity as well, but we can talk about that afterwards, but it's getting the right mix of voices in the design team. So when we design, we try not to be the lead designer or the architect. We're just a part of the design team. And then it's really difficult, I think, as architects to separate ego and you know, this is our design or create lines through the design but actually work really collectively because that's how we're going to get the results. So you can work with, so the people that we're working with who do consultation quite often are architects. There are some smaller architects that do it as well. And we like that because it creates a blend in terms of lines. So you're not having someone that just goes and does consultation then comes back with you with a bland response. You incorporate a couple of headlines. That's not how we do consultation anymore. And it's really interesting to see some of the the new kind of consultation consultancies that have come up recently who are around, some of them are around digital consultancy so they can really uh, create the outreach that people need to engage because engagement needs to be on all different levels, but also looking beyond that in terms of historic fabric, et cetera. So when you're looking at the way people use buildings and spaces, it's really about understanding those people. And I think, and I think we have to be honest that there's a certain amount of responsibility we have to understand the context that we're working in, but also to understand that no one's perfect. So it needs to be an ongoing process. So it can't be a singular point where we go, I think this is the answer, <laughs> put it in place. It needs to be an ongoing ecosystem that's allowed to grow and develop to respond to new situations and new people. Um, and new environments. And so then it can be properly adopted by communities and actually becoming part of a community rather than a foreign body. No, indeed. And they're great points that if you involve people in the process, they're more likely to be to have some custodianship over the outcomes and then be the sustainability, like the social sustainability glue that holds it together as it's enacted because they've had a stake of involvement. So thank you. And Flora, I wanted to ask you, in your book, Why Architects Matter, you speak to some of these themes as well, including, of course, a whole chapter on social architecture and lots of your other publications focusing on that area. 
But in the opening of your book, you discuss a range of attributes of architects' work and their impact. And as I read it, this included very much this balance of the dynamic between hard and soft infrastructure. How do you see architects and designers' contribution to these and the need for design to consider the reciprocity or integration between them? In a way, all my work has re- of recent years has become about mapping and showing what happens in terms of what you're calling soft infrastructure, the intangible aspects of buildings and places. And this, in a way, relates to social value, because social value is ultimately a, a value system that's about giving value to things like care, and child rearing, things that are, are, are not paid for. So, There's so much in this region around social value and the connections between people that keep places going. And these can be programmed skillfully into, say, for example, a community building. It's not just the community building. It's the program of activities that happen there. And then even beyond that, it's careful choreographing of those that program so that the, the young people who are doing something are coinciding with the older people. And so you get these fruitful and exciting exchange moments of people who wouldn't normally come together with, with all kinds of potentials. And those are really very beautifully documented in the Connective Social Infrastructure Report by the Mayor's Office in London, which I think is just a great report. So my whole world about this social value and intangible impacts and soft infrastructure is that we have to show where it's happening physically on maps. And I've been doing a lot of work around mapping social value and mapping these social infrastructure impacts. And indeed, I believe that this is we're doing a big, we've just started a big research project about consultation. I completely agree with Angela that uh, consultation has to be right there, but it has to be, has to be right there all the way through the process and beyond into the building in use. And so we're aiming towards creating maps of places that will allow people to in real time constantly comment on what they're feeling about places, where they feel connected with one another, where they take their exercise these sorts of things, to make a live patchwork of maps of Britain, which are social value maps, which would enable, if consultation happened on a particular project, you could put the project into the map and you could see the ripples of impact coming through. And we're not, I don't think we're very far from achieving this kinds of things, because I think that consultation has to be, it's a very stop-start perfunctory thing in Britain at the moment. It needs to be long term and building on past consultations in that area, enabling people to widen participation and to put love and care into drawing people in who wouldn't normally get involved. And this project what we're doing is a combination of digital consultation and face to face because we're wanting to look at how the two interact, because digital exclusion has not only not been properly defined, but it's still a really major issue. These social value maps, I believe, the first step towards things like in Reykjavik in Iceland, they have opportunities where the local people can constantly vote on what they want from their planning office. If they And also there's participatory budgeting. Decide Madrid is another place where local people are constantly able to vote. So I think the mapping of social infrastructure has its very direct will lead very directly to better democratic processes in the area because it's the alienation caused by feeling that you have no say, which I have in my own street because in Britain, the planning system is you make a local development plan and then five years later, it's made again. And anything in between, if it doesn't fit in with the local development plan, 
the community has, you know, there's nothing can be done. And also the local development plan is made without any interest in social. It's done on sustainability impacts and in economic impacts. So nobody's building the social into that initial plan. So I'm very hung up on this co-creating of maps of collecting what is the social infrastructure of the area so that it can be seen and accounted for, not only by communities themselves to find what's going on, but also for policymakers and decision makers going forward. And ultimately, so that that social value can be valued as part of the gross domestic value of a country. I think we're all, gross domestic product, I think it's, it's pretty much agreed that it's a terrible measure of what uh, is being achieved in a place. You can't be moved to gross domestic value, which looks at economic, social and environmental value in a very holistic and long-term way. Again, drawing on some of the comments that Angela made earlier on. Yeah, I think that uh, soft infrastructure is absolutely vital. It's the glue of places and good lives. Thank you. I couldn't agree more and I feel very heartened and nourished by both of your answers to that. Both of you have talked a lot about how important and vital social infrastructure is. And I want to ask then, in that context, what you think the greatest challenges are that designers face when you're seeking to enhance social connection, given that it's social infrastructure is vital, as we're discussing, and yet it may traditionally have not been part of, you know, the, the work plan. And if you're trying to add it in, then obviously you're trying you can you risk it being value managed out or you risk being priced out with competitors because you've added in all of this additional what you feel is absolutely vital. I also just wanted to kind of frame within this that in I've noticed that the recent past decades have seen this huge rise in advocacy for social value. For example, the Social Value UK group, which I'm sure you're both aware of, I've read that Jeremy Nichols actually started that in 2007 with a mission to change the way that the world accounts for value. And there's Social Value International, which has been around for 15 years with a network and a mission to embed core principles for social value measurement and analysis with a view to influencing policy. So architects as a profession have been around and practicing much longer than these kind of recent past decade interests in social value. We've really had a number of advocacy movements and disciplinary interests that focus on social practices in a kind of cyclically recurring way. But it is very poignant now and coming back to the surface. And maybe, Flora, that's in thanks to a lot of your hard work and advocacy as well. But is it possible that this renewed advocacy from things like Social Value UK and the Social Value International, this kind of recent decades, do you think it's possible that renewed advocacy can leverage opportunities for architects in some ways and offer the opportunity to reframe and perhaps broaden the understanding of the value of design? to consider the value of process itself and also the value of performance outcomes because in so many ways when projects have been evaluated in the past, those items have um, often been neglected in terms of how the, if you think of, I always think of evaluation as being the evidence of value. So in the past there hasn't been a way to evidence the value of good process. And there hasn't in the past been a way to evidence the value of performance outcomes. So do you feel that this that there's this kind of opportunity burgeoning at the moment? Or do you think that there are other greater challenges in how to deliver social connection in our built environments? It's a difficult question. The, I think we're only just starting to get our heads around post-occupancy evaluation for sustainability. 
So the sterling price has just moved the sterling price back. We had a year off because of COVID, but they've used that year. So you can at least have one year of post-occupancy evaluation of what a building is. I think we need to move away. And I, I think part of it is, is policy. We need to move away from a developer building a building, stepping straight away and not, not caring about anything beyond the value of the building and the asset as an asset. But I think one of, one of our major barriers is understanding the value of design and actually quantifying what that means. And I think, I think people are much more aware now of the social impacts, the health impacts, but there's got to be a way that we can measure that. And in order to show value, there has to be a measurement and a way to show what success looks like. And so there's been some, there's been some small kind of projects which have shown success around new communities. King's Cross Development in London is a quite a good example of showing a mixed community, mixed users. It's created uh, its own social hub. It's maybe slightly disconnected from existing communities because it's much more of an isolated site. But at least through throughout COVID, it was really interesting that actually that was least impacted compared to some of the other more homogenous areas, such as central London, for instance, which is much more about shop or retail and one single use. So you can start to see, so people are starting to understand the value of mixed, mixed communities and having, having, the, have, having the requirements for communities to thrive, like the different aspects that, that communities need to thrive. So health for health, for leisure, for work, all integrated into a community. The real issue that we need right, right now is to understand what success looks like. And so having some kind of way of measuring success, such as a post-occupancy evaluation that we're doing for sustainability, will be really important to show how valued this is in terms of incorporating it into our briefs. So at the moment, I think we're, all, we're still struggling at the point of, of demonstrating how we can show social value in, in, a, in our procurement route to actually win the projects, yet alone at the end of the project when it's completed. So I think that for me, that is the one of the biggest issues that we're facing at the moment is really convincing clients why we need so many people on the design team, why we're taking longer in the design process to come up with our analysis of what is appropriate design for a place and a sense of place. Laura, what do you see as the challenge? At the level of, of practice and practitioners, I would say that skills and knowledge of how to capture social value, how to do research, how to do ethical research, there's a real lack of them within architectural practice and edu uh, in education in Britain is now, with Brexit, actually orientating around being able to deliver some of these skills. Social value is coming into architectural education. So there's a real challenge around that. The average architect is paid less than a brickie in Britain, according to the building press. So there's a real, yeah, so there's a real lack of funds within practice to develop anything beyond survival mode. And that is in a way because architects have gone fees have plummeted and for all sorts of reasons I set out in my book Why Architects Matter. I think there's a, a real opportunity coming here. There are really bad clients out there who are always going to produce really bad buildings which are just going to be flipped and they just don't care. So let's just discount them from the conversation here. But those clients who are responsible are going to be getting their money quite often from big banks, pension funds and so on. So there's a very exciting opportunity emerging through Britain through things like pensions for purpose and the good economy, where they're going right to the very top with the pensions and the funders 
trying to embed social value into their measurements of what they do so that the funders will start asking for social value to be delivered by client teams, which will then push that to be uh, delivered by the architectural practices and contractors that work for them because nearly all buildings in Britain are designed and built, so therefore led by contractors. So it's, I, th- I believe that social value is going to come down like a stick of rock through the funding chain, and client teams are going to be asking for it to be delivered. Then we also have the challenge of the way that um, procurement happens at the moment, in the old-fashioned idea that uh, traditional procurement, as we call in the UK, where the architect's in charge, that hardly ever happens. But whether it's traditional procurement or design and build, it's still based on enormous great contractual agreements, which in the main people who make the money out of that are the lawyers. So we're moving towards a, a zone of value-based procurement or outcomes-based procurement. Clever clients are asking for the team to work together under a collective insurance to work together to achieve certain value outcomes. So Anglia Water is a client that that asks for value outcomes that relate to their customer offer, for example. And there's been an amazing piece of work called Procuring for Value by Anne Bellany, who's a surveyor in the UK. And that has led to the development of a very large digital platform tool called the VAT, produced by the Construction Innovation Hub, which is in a way a graphic equaliser of different kinds of value that a client might actually want to ask for in projects. And that's also being, that's been piloted a lot on a lot of projects at the moment, including the targeting local authorities and people like that. So I believe that value-based procurement is going to hit architectural practice shockingly soon. And those practices that have their, what I call the data ducks in order, are going to be in a much better position. So I asked, I was talking to the head of a very large city procurement and a very large city procurement team. And I said, are we ending, are we moving towards a stage when practices are going to have to demonstrate that the value that they delivered in the past in order to get jobs going forward? And he said, absolutely, yes. That is where it's heading. So a big challenge to architecture is to get evidence of the value that you're generating already to enable you to get jobs coming in the future through these kind of platforms. I think these platforms are potentially a little bit scary. And I think, as Angela was saying earlier, everything has to be a bit provisional and constantly updated and tweaked and changed. But if they work well, you know, that could be a really an amazing opportunity for, for getting the, the social value on the agenda. I should also mention facilities management because facilities management is one of the fastest growing parts of the whole construction sector. And there's such opportunities in there because facilities management have great benef- have can benefit from really great buildings. And I've known architects like there's one uh, spaceman and they are architects who've moved into facilities management because they see that the whole thing has to be uh, a curated journey along with the softer infrastructure, Angelique, that you've been talking about. And actually, there's a, you can make a whole curated journey of experience and data gathering and data loops and information gathering across the entire con- uh, construction process, which would be such a positive thing. I think Angela alluded to the early starts when all, there's a lot of work and research that goes into uh, starting up a project and getting to find out what's happening on the ground. And I don't think architects are at all properly paid for that sector. It's just bound up into one tiny little stage in the RABA plan of work or two stages. And if you were working in user experience or product design, you would take that stage out and you would unravel it like a sort of intestine of miles of journey and you would be getting paid for every stage on the way. 
So other people have been much better at being paid for the jo- for the jobs that architects just bind up into something and don't get paid for, or hardly get paid anything for. So there's a, a challenge is to actually articulate what it is that architects do getting paid for it, enabling architects to do it better. It's really inspiring to hear you talk about that landscape that could be coming where there is, or we together, all of us are developing how you work out, how you evidence the value that you've already created as the basis to then have the the reputation that can be built upon for what you can deliver in the future. And it would be wonderful in teaching in studio. I know I'm always talking to students about you shouldn't have to wait for the client to cross the this traditional client to cross the threshold with bags of money and who's articulate and knows exactly what they want. Actually, if you want to be an architect entrepreneur, you just watch the world around you and you think about how could that moment there be improved? Who might benefit from it? Who are all the stakeholders who are involved? How do I find out more about it? How do I, together with the stakeholders, work out a brief? And then who do we get to fund it because we know they're going to benefit? And all of that front end is obviously the unpaid at the moment as they try to bring together a project and then the idea would be that if it does become a project, then you start being paid. So I think what you're saying, that perhaps the bigger firms have found other ways to balance that, but increasingly we're going to need that front end to be properly enumerated, otherwise the profession is going to continue on this race to the bottom with fees, which doesn't work out for anyone. But then um, I, but, I wonder whether yeah. part of it is around policy as well. So I've been working uh, a little bit alongside some Swedish firms. And in Sweden, they have a really long democratic process. Really long that it's actually a little bit frustrating because it's so slow, but it's so democratic. So the front end of a project takes forever to get off the ground. And that's because everyone has a say. So until they've done that full consultation, like nothing is going anywhere. And that's policy. The government has put that in place to say, okay, who are we as people? We're democratic. We want everyone to have a voice. We're putting that into our planning processes. And I think what we're missing a little bit of in the UK, and I see it a little bit in Australia as well, is like actually working out who we are as a people and then reflecting that into our planning process. Because what we do quite a lot in terms of our planning process and the way that the policy is set up is we have ad hoc little movements that that change things as we go. And we're seeing it like today, we got an announcement, there'll be there will be some funding for uh, air source heat pumps. Just out of the blue, we get these little snaps, which is fine. But who are we as a people? How do we integrate that into our policy? How do we turn the planning process into something that's much more socially effective, much more uh, beneficial for health and well-being and, and who we are as a population? I think this is something that I feel that we're missing. And it's because quite often we're on this short cycle of the governmental, the voting cycle. We're on an election cycle and priorities keep changing, whereas social responsibility does not change. Sustainability does not change. We need long-term embedded aims. And I think that's as much as that we can have impact on that, we can't have as much impact as, say, the government come in and actually putting in policies that will allow that to happen, allow us to have the time and the space and the money to do what's needed to be done. If I could add to add something in that area, I am in Cardiff in Wales, and in Wales we have an amazing policy background. We have this: we have the Well Future Generations Act, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, twenty fifteen, whereby people have got to be thinking about the impact of things on five generations forward in everything that they do, 
And this is only just starting to trickle down into more detailed kind of planning policy and so on. But I think I should mention really that Scotland has got incredible, incredibly, it's developing some incredibly democratic processes around planning. Northern Ireland hasn't had a part of government until fairly recently, and it's starting to put things into process. It's the big issue is England, which where England is, which as somebody said to me recently, people think of England as being 100 miles around London, which is an area of great land value. So it's all the rest of the north and everywhere, which are less affluent, has left out of the agenda. But we have such a powerfully neoliberal policy going on in, in England. But the trouble is, it's just not working for the delivery of housing and things like that. And even conservative young people on the right wing of the spectrum are starting to say, hey, all these things that were promised to me are not being delivered. So I think that housing and social value is becoming a very cross, across the political spectrum, <laughs> becoming really key issues. A slight digression, but I think I, I, I want to, what I try and work with students is to, to point out that we didn't always have a neoliberal government. When I was born, I, and I remember Mrs Thatcher being voted in, there was other alternatives. And certainly in Wales, it's, there's talk about post-neoliberalism. And unfortunately, Wales is a country with not a great deal of money. But I think that there are amazing pioneers coming through showing how things can be done in different kinds of ways. But I think Angela's absolutely right. The government has to give the steer on all of this. And that concludes our third episode of this nine-part series. Just a reminder that these first three episodes are a CPD product for the Australian Institute of Architects. So if you're a member, check the Institute platform to record your points. I'd like to acknowledge that this program was made possible with support from the Alastair Swain Foundation. Find out more at alastairswainfoundation.org. Technical production was done by Andrew Limpenning of Big Boy Productions. And if you enjoyed this episode, please check out the rest of the series, share with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about my work at schoolforcreatingchange.com and in my 2020 book, Connecting People, Place and Design.